Hello. If you're hearing my voice right now, then you have stumbled onto the podcast where real stories of professional criminal profilers are told by professional assholes. Welcome to Profiling Pain. What is going on, co-filers? It has been a little bit since the last time we've spoken. I believe the last episode I did was Frank Sinatra, and you guys love that shit. The, uh, the numbers were actually looking really good on the Frank Sinatra. I was really surprised. I was, I was just kind of going with the flow there, um, thinking, you know, mob, Frank Sinatra, lounge singers, Vegas, just kind of rope it all together, and it, it kind of worked out, so that's pretty cool. Um, so... On the next side profile, we're actually going to be teaming up with the guys from Rap Sheets. <clears throat> and if you haven't listened to their podcast yet, they only have one episode out as of right now. Uh, that could be different by the time you're listening to this. But Rap Sheets, R-A-P-P-S-H-E-E-T-S, Rap Sheets, also on Age of Radio. Their first uh, their first episode was uh, whether or not we should vote. It's kind of a it's kind of an emotionally driven conversation between the three of them. You got a uh, Levon, Jet, and Donnie, and it was a it was a pretty pretty good listen. I listened to it. I mean, the guys the guys are funny. They had, but they had a lot of good information. They had a lot of misinformation, which you'll have when when uh, a conversation is emotionally driven. But it was it was good. It, it brought certain things. You know, they they got you thinking a little bit, and they they opened up a, a conversation, which is what podcasts are supposed to do. You're supposed to feel like you're part of the conversation in the room. So, and hopefully you guys feel that way when you listen to my shit. Um, secondly, what are we at, man? So, oh, the election's going, and um, the clusterfuck of a debate that we had last week was crazy. Uh, the first debate between between Trump and, and uh, Biden. And then tonight, actually, if you guys watched it, today is the 7th of October, so that was the vice president uh, debate, which I watched the majority of. And, God, those are some just dry people dry people although there was a little bit more information coming out of their mouths than there was when the actual presidential candidates were arguing so that was kind of i guess a plus but it's you know for the vice presidency it's pander 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 to their to their fucking main candidate um to those of you who listen abroad that is in other countries other than america i am really curious as to what it is you guys are seeing when you watch the news because i know that america's got their fucking hands in every cookie jar they possibly can so in one way or another outside of just media social media entertainment uh podcast <laughs> um you guys must some what follow american politics i'm sure that that's on uh, on a, a mainstay when you see who's supposed to be the the number one country in the world fucking going through this horse shit i just want to know what your guys' opinion is of not only um trump getting covid but of uh, Black Lives Matter of just just what you're seeing happening in this country at the moment. I really would like a, a broader perspective, um, and also I you know the, I I see a list of countries every month when I get my statement that are that are listening. Um, we're able to check and all that other stuff. So I wanted to start saying thank you in different languages. Um, so today I'm gonna try Bosnian. So. Valiente Puno Prepalipo, which I that's not thank you. I believe that is actually how you say I love you so much, beautiful. So thank you, you beautiful bastards, and I love you for listening. I appreciate it. Um, let's see, lions, tigers, bears, COVID, 
fucking you name it. NFL is back, and now there's an outbreak within the NFL of COVID. Uh, COVID, 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 Halloween. So that's another thing. Uh, I'm going to be doing a Halloween special at the end of this month. I'm going to release it on Halloween. And it's going to be all about the actual candy man. The one that actually is the whole reason we have to check our candy for poison. So that will be a cool little, little side story there. Um... And that's it. So next weekend, I'll be hooking up the guys from Rap Sheets, and we'll be doing uh, Jam Master J. That cold case that just got solved recently. 18-year-long cold case. So that should be pretty cool. That's going to be on the next side profile slash Rap Sheets. It's going to be a, a, a swap cast. Um, and that's about it for this month so far. I mean, if you guys feel like going to... Rap Sheets slash LeVon Simmons um, personal Facebook page uh, on the 25th of October I will be doing a poetry slam whatever the fuck a poetry slam is so I'm assuming I'll be rapping without a beat it's just gonna be a bunch of uh, bougie ass acapella fucking 16 bars here whatever so I'll be doing that too um, <clears throat> so let's get started so before we get into Ted Bundy I actually found um, a really cool webs or a really cool page called Living Facts, and so there's been a lot of dispute, like on rap sheets, like I was mentioning earlier, of whether or not we should vote. If our vote even matters, does it count? Does it does it go anywhere? Um, and I am one of those people who have always said like, oh, it doesn't fucking matter. The electoral college is the one that elects the president. Well, yes, um, but I recently found some information um, about how often it actually just goes down to the electoral college and it's not the actual uh popularity vote because the popularity vote is actually supposed to so so the way that it's set up is that you have a certain number of electoral uh college voters in your state so the populace vote and then your electoral your electoral college representatives uh take the mass majority of what that state wants and then votes either red or blue and that's, that's how it's supposed to work. And so I have some timelines here and some facts here about how it works, when it was implemented, and how many times they've actually said, well, you know what, fuck how you feel. I'm going to go ahead and go blue. I know you want red, but I think you really mean blue. So we're going to go ahead and get into that. Again, I, I got it from an article um, on Living Facts. So what is the Electoral College? So a closer look at how Americans elect their president. Now, when America casts their vote for president, they are in all reality directing other people called electors to vote for the candidate who receives the most votes in their state. Uh, the political party of the winning candidate in each state then sends its pre-selected electors to the state capitol to vote. This is the Electoral College, and its members select the president and vice president of the United States. So why does this process exist? Well, essentially, the framers of the Constitution established the Electoral College to forge a compromise between those who wanted the president to be elected by members of Congress and those who wanted a president elected by the popular vote. So today, there are 538 electors constitute the Electoral College. Each state is allocated electors equal to its number of representatives in the U.S. House of Representatives. Currently, a total of 430 fucking five. So, that's a whole lot of representation, and yeah, I see a whole lot of unhappy people, but that's neither here nor there. So, also you get your total of two senators per state, right? So, you have 100 total senators. 
Now, the District of Columbia has also allocated three electors. That's D.C. guys. So these numbers can change every 10 years based on the results of the census, state laws differ. So when they tell you that your census is important and they want to know how many people are in your household, that also holds weight on how many electors that state gets. So if people are like, oh, fucking don't, don't tell the census how many people you got, you know, it's, it's not because they're doing population control. It's for, it's, it's, it's for social programs. It's, it's for a number of things. I mean, it's even for, for how many teachers should be allocated to a district to help out with the, with the, the demand of students. Like it's, there's a lot of different things that the census actually does. So sometimes, just sometimes, put aside your fucking conspiracy theory and actually just be a functioning member of society for a minute. Do your fucking census. Get it all. That way, people's vote and everything. I mean, I mean, all the way from the vote down to how much fucking lunch they're going to have for kids in school. I mean, it, it's all allocated through state and federal funds that come from the, the fucking census. Anyway, so 48 states in the District of Columbia have a winner-take-all policy that the Electoral College must follow. That means that a candidate who wins, say, 51% of the state's popular vote, they're awarded 100% of the state's electors. Okay? So... Maybe, uh, I see that, that part I kind of have an issue with because people go out and vote, but it's not always, mm, we had this debate the other day. It was, it was the idea of you're either Democrat or Republican, which not everybody's just Democrat or Republican. And a lot of people will vote before even hearing an argument. Like, they already know. Like, oh, I'm, I was, I've always been a Republican. I'm going to vote Republican. I think if you vote prior to hearing the argument, you're, you, know, you already know who you're going to vote for before you even hear the discussion. I think that there's something wrong with you. But at the same time, after watching the last debate, I fucking, I, you know, go with your gut, I guess. So anyway, so since the nation's founding, hundreds of proposals to reform or eliminate the Electoral College have aimed to change how Americans elect a president. Now, since the process is defined in the Constitution, only an amendment can change the system. So a constitutional amendment requires two-thirds majority vote in the House of Representatives and is the Senate plus the approval of three-quarters of the states or a constitutional convention called by two-thirds of state legislators, which was... I mean, it's never happened, obviously, and because we still have this process, and I don't think that it's something that is going to happen. I mean, it seems like it's so much easier to pass more red tape and more bureaucratic nonsense through legislation than it is to get rid of it through legislation. I mean, you know what I mean? It's kind of like when you're working for a company and then you see, like, a new little fee on there. Like, say you're working out of state and there's, like, a specific state tax that you didn't know was there, or, like, for me, I'm... Uh, I work for a union, okay, I work for a, a uh, uh, I'm, I'm a union pipe fitter, um, so when I went to go work in New York, I'm, I'm from Arizona, when I went to go work in New York, there was a little, little, like, tax, little, little union hall tax thing on that paycheck, so that they can kind of tax the travelers a little bit more money to help, you know, make their apprenticeship better, or make their hall better, or whatever, because they, they had all the work in the country at the time, so they kind of, you know, give an inch, take a mile, it was a whole lot easier for them to add that tax to our checks to take from us than it was for us to get it removed, although, you know, people wanted it removed, but it, it was something that would be really hard to get to go away. It's the same thing. It's the same thing as, as bureaucracy. You, you, you can always get more red tape lined out. It's much, much harder to get the red tape to go away. Now, in March of 2020, a Pew Research Center studied our study found that a majority of the U.S. adults, 
were in favor of amending the Constitution so that the presidential candidate who receives the most votes nationwide wins. So, you know, how it should be, people's voice. While 40% preferred to keep the current system in which the candidate who receives the most electoral college votes declares victory. Now, what I have an issue with there is that how many times has Al Gore or somebody else, you know, like we, we saw that with the Bush Al Gore, we saw it with a handful of other things, um, where they count the popular vote. The other candidate clearly won the you know popular vote, and yet the Electoral College elected these people. Now, I, I'm, I'm just saying, after the Electoral College, after the, you know, that majority got that, was it the full popular vote that the other candidate won, or was it just the popular vote for the remaining ballots to be counted? You know what I mean? Um, it's just it's kind of a shaky system. I think it should be based off a of popular vote alone, but I see why they do the Electoral College, because there is, there is you know, a few hundred million people in this country. So it is kind of hard, I would say, to count every single ballot without the representation early on since we started voting in November. The number of states that don't have a winner-take-all policy is actually two. Um, one of them is Maine, and the other one is Nebraska. Now, what they do is they allow electors to split between parties proportionally to how their candidates won in different parts of the state. However, a selection of mixed-party electors has happened only twice in Nebraska in 2008 and in Maine in 2016. Now, nine is the number of elections since 1900 when at least one elector voted for someone other than the candidate he or she promised to support. Check that shit out. They decided just to go ahead and do whatever the fuck they saw fit. That's why people are pushing for the popular vote. Now, seven is the number of electors who voted contrary to their state's popular vote for president in 2016, the most who've done so since 1972. Uh, sorry, the most who've done, yeah, exactly. Fucking, I said it right. Anyway, electors generally vote according to their state's popular vote. Generally. They're supposed to. But, I mean, nah. We can't turn around the Constitution and change the amendment to get them taken out. But they, protected by the Constitution, can go ahead and say, you know what, mm, fuck who you want. We know how this is supposed to work. But I really want this guy. Which... When you get into big business and super PACs and fucking special interest groups and dark money and da da da, I mean, you, you can venture down the rabbit hole. Anybody that holds a position of power, no matter how minute in the political world, I believe is bought by somebody else somehow. I'm not saying they're all backed by like fucking Bezos, Bezos, fucking Amazon money. They're not all backed by Bill Gates or anything like that, but I think. <clears throat> There's a lot more special interest groups and a lot more uh, privatized um, voting than we realize. So moving on. So five is the number of times the president has been elected by winning the electoral college vote, but not the popular vote. This happened in 1824, 1876, 1888, 2000, which was, if you remember, Al Gore and Bush, and 2016, which, if you remember, because it wasn't that long ago, it was well, fucking Summer Olympics ago that never happened, uh, Trump and Hillary. Now, two is the number of presidential elections that have been decided in the House of Representatives. 
This chamber of Congress elects the president if no candidate wins a majority of electoral votes and did so in 1800-1824. Now, that kind of concludes the, uh, the article, but to, the, to that point of letting the Congress vote, there was actually, in 2016, a plan by the Republican Tea Party to... Um, they were hoping for a split electoral college-wise... And then what they were planning on doing was, since the Congress was going to eventually, essentially have the vote after that, they were hoping to get Romney elected. Romney was like who they really wanted to get into the White House. And I don't know how true this is. I wasn't paying as much attention as I should have four years ago. But I did read somewhere. I just can't remember where, so I can't cite my sources, so I don't know how factual... But I read somewhere that Hillary and Trump were actually the two lowest, had the two lowest approval ratings of any candidates, like, in American history. And they both somehow magically came out of the Republican National Convention, the RNC, and the Democratic National Convention, the DNC. Now, they let people vote in the preliminary rounds, and they sit there, and they, they trot out all their Democratic nominees, and they trot out all the Republican nominees, but I think the winner that we have to choose from actually comes out of their own party pushing them forward. I mean, there's no reason right now why Biden should be the frontrunner. He really shouldn't. Like, I'm not, I don't have any true political ties to anybody, but you listen to Kamala Harris talk, and she sounds a whole lot more there and rational than Biden does. Like, Biden seems a little out of it. He just seems out of sorts. And Kamala, who's his now running mate, who just a few months ago was just wiping her fucking ass with his name, because that's what they do. They get up there, they talk shit amongst the six to eight of them, and then they start to weed each other out, and then just then after that it gets based on who has the most money, and then after that it's who can get the most backing from these super PACs, and then after that it's like, okay, well then who's going to be their running mate? And it's usually the two people who've talked the most shit about each other. Like, it's it's insane how, how the process works. And then, you know, you cut over to Trump, where Trump didn't really have any adversaries from the RNC. They're like, yeah, he's our guy. He already won. We all believe he's going to win again. We'll just push him forward. As opposed to new, fresher Republican ideas, assuming that there was any. You know what I mean? And and it was just, they just said, yeah, we have our frontrunner. That's it. That's all. Why, you know, fix what ain't broke, essentially. And that's essentially the two-party system, and that's how the way that the Electoral College works. So if you still feel like your vote doesn't matter, it doesn't. I mean, I just kind of re-ran through that after I read it out loud to you guys, and it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You should still vote. You should still honor the process, I think. I guess you're just going through the motions. It's not that your vote doesn't matter. It's just that there's been too many instances where they treated it like it didn't. But that's it. That's all. Moving on. So Ted Bundy. Now, when we left off, he was uh, making his way into Utah. So I actually found um, a really, really, really cool Ted Bundy story uh, to cover the remainder of, of the Ted Bundy story. Um, and Raquel Bell, uh, 
she actually runs her own podcast called Crimes Unlimited. Um, I haven't checked out her podcast. I'm going to. I just didn't want to do so because I wanted to fight the urge of listening to her talk about Ted Bundy after reading how she wrote about Ted Bundy. It's one of those things where, like, I've, I've made the mistake, um, and anybody who listens to multiple true crime podcasts, I'm sure, have witnessed other people do this. I've, I've made the mistake of listening to other people's representations of a character and then turning around and almost mimicking some of the things that they said or mimicking some of the ways that they acted. And I understand that true crime is just regurgitating information. It's all public knowledge. I mean, you can find it anywhere. Wikipedia, fucking, you can, I mean, you just Google a serial killer's name, you're going to, you'll have YouTube documentaries that were self-made. You know, you're going to find, there's, true crime knows no bounds. You'll find anything. And so it really is all just regurgitated information. And so that's all, that's all I'm really doing is I'm just taking stories that I've read and articles that I like and the way that I like that they've been represented and then kind of milling it around a little bit and then bring it to you through um, a different outlook, maybe a different perspective, maybe just a different way of, of delivering it. Like say, <clears throat> you'll have two different styles of rappers. That's essentially what it is. Like I'm, you know, you, I, I could take a mumble rapper's lyrics and I could spit it, you know, and, and turn it around and make it like early nineties, you know, New York hip hop. That's all I'm doing. I'm just spitting it a little bit differently for you guys. And I appreciate the fact that you guys enjoy the way I do that. So it would all works out. Um, but she, actually uh is a true crime writer she's got i mean degrees on degrees in, in psychology i mean criminology she's she's a badass and i i actually want to uh learn more about her like as soon as i found that article that that or the story that she wrote about ted bunny and i read i read through it for today's episode i was like man this chick is cool like i mean she's right up there for me with uh james fitzpatrick or sorry fitzgerald and, uh, and, 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 and Jim Clemente, who are both ex-FBI profilers. One of them actually um, was a part of the case when it came to, if you ever saw Evil Genius on Netflix, um, with that crazy chick and that dude and the whole, like, saw version of the neck bomb thing. And then, uh, and then Fitz, Fitzpatrick, Fitzgerald, damn it. it it's, it's Fitzgerald, I'm positive. Anyway. <laughs> I'm sitting here trying to talk so great about them, and I forgot their names for a second. But he actually, uh, the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, he, he caught him, and he was actually a, a handwriting, um, a handwriting uh, profiler. So that's, and that's, I mean, that's almost dead technology today. And I mean, not tech, I guess lack of technology, but that's almost a dead, you know, art form today. And the fact that he was able to catch the Unabomber that way is pretty interesting. I mean, it's, it's really cool. Uh, it was actually Jim Clemente listening to um, one of his podcasts. He actually does True Crime Profile, which all the episodes I've listened to have been based on Netflix episodes, shit like that. Uh, but Jim Clemente actually talked about when the FBI profiling division really broke down into three different departments. So you had child abuse and sex crimes, and then you had um, actual like federal capital murder, stuff like that, and then you had uh, robbery federal robbery and stuff like that and, and, and stuff and I think those are the three I think I'm correct but yeah I'm pretty sure I'm correct anyway but yeah so she's right up there for me after reading some of her background and I really look forward to listening to her podcast but as I said I didn't want to listen to it prior to doing a Ted Bundy story based off of uh, what I've read of her stuff so I'm citing my sources this came from uh, the the article that I found was called Ted Bundy Attack and it was everything that she had pretty much put down so um, I'm going to go ahead and get into that. She wrote a lot more from um, 
it's still a third person perspective but you hear a lot more about personal accounts which i think for the whole profiling process um actually hearing more about these personal accounts will bring you closer to the case and let you kind of get a little bit more into ted bunny's head and then the next episode will probably be just i mean his court case like in depth in his court case which we're going to get into in this one too a little bit and then also his uh um, his back and forth with his therapist. Um, I found a couple cool um, transcripts of his actual dialogue back and forth, um, which I, that could either be something I throw up on the Facebook page for you to go through so you don't have to listen to me just go, all right, Ted, why did you do it? And then be like, because the demon inside of me. Like, So you don't have to listen to that shit. That could get pretty boring. But that's the part that I'm actually really interested in. So maybe I'll just share that on the Facebook page or... You know, I don't know. Uh, hit me up at centartainment at gmail.com, which is the uh, the email for Profiling Pain. Go ahead and send me an email, and we'll go from there. Also, real quick before we get into this, uh, I really want you guys to email me um, what musicians you want me to cover on Side Profile. I really enjoyed doing Side, side Profile. I really enjoyed uh, researching Frank Sinatra, and I'm really sorry for the audio in the last two episodes. It was really boring. I was really dry. It was really boring. Um, I'm hoping that you're actually hearing me again and not whatever closet Chris was so I hope you guys are are enjoying this a little bit more because um, I am I'm in a much bigger space I've got a much nicer setup uh, I'm it's 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 still lonely without Rocio and Fuego but I am actually enjoying doing this episode so anyway let's get right into it all right so Midvale Utah we left off with Ted Bundy actually um, he got picked up in Washington, which we didn't cover, and they found all kinds of shit in his uh, beetle that was a little weird, to say the least. And then he actually ended up in a line in a lineup. Now they qu- they had eight people, eight people come and check out this lineup at Ted Bundy, and seven out of the eight uh, didn't say it was him. They they looked right at right at Ted Bundy, like nope, 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 nope. And that's a very interesting point for me is that essentially what they came down to was a straight laced college white male which is how he represented himself um there's no way in hell that he could have been capable of all these things there's no way in hell that he was the one that took off with their friends that they witnessed like there's no way whereas i feel like in this day and age if you see a straight laced white male in a college or high school or church or public setting and he goes too fast for his backpack everybody's gonna freak the fuck out because unfortunately he is like public enemy number one for mass shootings in this country now it's just crazy how over the course of the last 40 to 50 years we've seen that transition you know you you, you take ted bunny from the 1970s who was getting away with murder literally because he was a straight-laced looking young man and then you cut to some of these guys i'm not you know the aurora colorado guy he's he's out that dude had multicolored hair he looked i mean there was there was a lot going on there i mean asperger's as fuck he, he looked i mean crazy but <clears throat> you cut to some of these other cats who look fucking normal you know there's a lot of guys that just look normal if you remember the vegas shoot, i mean they look fucking normal and that would have been just passed by which even at the time when it happened i guess it kind of was i guess they were kind of looked over 
But now I feel like America is a little bit more prone to, to searching those people out. Those are the first ones you're going to watch. Or at least when you see them act a little shifty, now it's like, fuck, fuck, fuck. They might be one of them, you know. But that's, anyway, so now <laughs> now we're getting into Utah and Colorado. I just, I left that part out of the uh, Washington state. And I wanted to just kind of dial back and talk about that for a second. So Midvale, Utah's police chief, Lewis Smith. Okay, now he had a 17-year-old daughter. And he told her all the time about the dangers of the world. I mean, you can't not tell your kids if you're a police chief, obviously. Um, and he had seen way too much during his career, and he was really worried about his daughter's safety. Now, unfortunately, uh, the ultimate fear for him came true on October 18th of 1974. His daughter, Melissa, had disappeared, and then her body was actually found nine days later, strangled, sodomized, and raped. Thirteen days later, on Halloween, 17-year-old Laura Aim disappeared. And she was found on Thanksgiving Day in Wasatch Mountains, lying dead by a river. She had been beaten about the head and face with a crowbar, raped, and sodomized. It was suspected that she was killed someplace other than where they found the body due to the complete lack of blood on the crime scene. Um, other than her body, there was really no physical evidence for the police to use whatsoever. Now... The similarities with the Washington State murders caught the attention of local police in Utah. Which, if you remember, when we did the uh, uh, Hillside Stranglers case, it was the same thing. It was Washington and California, Glendale, California and, 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 and Washington, where I believe the police chief of Washington's friend, who was living in California, had been picked up by the Hillside Stranglers. They had actually snagged uh, his daughter and then that police chief got to take care of Kenneth Miyake. He got to fucking, you know, expedite him. So, kind of small poetic justice. Um, <clears throat> they were frantically searching, sorry, the attention of local police in Utah. Caught the attention of local police in Utah. Uh, they were frantically searching for the man responsible for the grisly crimes. Now, with each murder, the evidence was slowly, 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 slowly mounting. He didn't leave too much evidence. He moved the bodies. He did it elsewhere. And in the 1970s, their forensics wasn't what it is today, obviously. Uh, they could tell they even sodomized, but they can't take a semen sample. As we learned in the Hillside Stranglers case also, the only thing that they were able to really, really test with the semen at that time was what blood type you were. That's it, that's all. Um, Utah police consulted with Washington State investigators. Almost all of them agreed that it was highly likely that the same person was committing these crimes um, and also were responsible for every one of them. And they hadn't said it was a team. I, there was never any real thing that I've read that says it was a team of guys or it was two guys. Like, it, they all kind of just narrowed it down to one. Now, thanks to eyewitnesses' accounts of the man in the cast seen near the areas where many of the women had disappeared, they were able to come up with a composite of the would-be killer who called himself Ted. Now, if you remember, he was using the same, I, I guess in Utah, he was using the same cast story that he was using uh, in Washington, it was like, oh, my, my leg is broke or my arm is in a sling. Can you help me carry this to my car? Uh, when a close friend of Elizabeth Kendall saw the account of Melissa Smith's murder in the paper uh, and the composite sketch, um, she knew that it was Ted Bundy. It was Ted Bundy that must be the man. It wasn't just her intense dislike and mistrust for Elizabeth's boyfriend that led her to believe that Ted was the man, but also the fact that he looked so much like the composite picture in the paper. Like, Boom, 100%. Now, deep down, Elizabeth must have known her friend was right. After all, Ted did resemble the sketch, uh, 
He drove a VW similar to those seen from the witnesses, and she had seen crutches in his room even though he never injured his leg. Now, according to the book The Phantom Prince, My Life with Ted Bundy, which was later written by Kendall, she anonymously called the Seattle Police Department in August of 1974 and stated that her boyfriend might be involved in the recent murder case. She called again later that fall and gave more persistent information that might assist the investigators in the case. She also agreed to give recent pictures of Ted to later be shown to witnesses. However, the witnesses did not make a positive ID after viewing the pictures and Elizabeth's report was eventually filed away. Now, investigators working the case decided they were going to turn their attention towards more likely suspects and Ted Bundy was forgotten until a few years later which how many times have we seen this happen you know it's it's unfortunately here there's no detective with the hunch you know like in other cases that we've covered or even other cases I'm sure you've heard and read about there's always that one detective with a hunch there's no fucking hunch here he's getting a free pass because like I said straight lace now the kid the killer continued to elude investigators, assuming that by operating in different states, the police would be unable to compare the cases. His behavior became increasingly bold and risky as he approached women. Those who escaped his advances would later recognize him and provide the police with valuable information. So we're going to cover some of these risky attacks. It was on November 8th of 1974 when police investigators were to get their break in the case, <clears throat> for which they had been waiting, dying to get, no pun intended. That Friday evening, a strange but handsome man in a bookstore at a Utah mall approached 18-year-old Carol DeRanche. Now, Carol DeRanche would inevitably be one of Ted Bundy's downfalls. And I'm going to explain to you why. Although Ted Bundy had left a few women alive accidentally, there's, I mean, there's people who get to a point where they strangle their victim till they pass out thinking that they're dead but they never even totally crush the windpipe it happens sometimes these killers get a little lazy or they they think they finished the job when they really didn't well carol de uh becomes a fucking loose end for bundy now the stranger told her that he had seen someone trying to break into her car and asked her to go along with him to the parking lot to see if anything had been stolen Carol thought that the man must have been a mall security guard because he seemed so in control of the situation. Which again, how many times have we talked about these douchebags acting as if they are a person of authority to get the, the, the trust of, the, of their victims? It happens all the damn time. So ladies and, and fellas, it can happen to you guys too. Just no matter how sure a person seems, you go, go back to the book, The Art of War. Trust, but verify asked to see a badge you know what i mean and try to just especially with everything that's going on i mean on the last episode not the last episode but the episode before last we covered the QAnon with all the kids going missing i mean there's all kinds of fucking weird shit happening in this country in this world and it's been happening for a long time just keep your head on a swivel stay aware 360 degree awareness there's nothing wrong with that it's okay and if you live in an open carry state fucking open carry i mean there's n we have a second amendment it's not going away right now i mean utilize it if you're able to utilize it utilize it stay protected stay protected and just be responsible <sighs> anyway when they arrived at the car she checked it and informed the man everything was there the man who identified himself as officer roseland see as an officer was not satisfied and wanted to escort her to police headquarters he wanted her to id the supposed criminal and file a complaint 
When he led her to the VW Bug, she became suspicious and asked for identification. He quickly showed her a gold badge and then escorted her into the car. Alright, well that just shoots my theory shit, sorry. Uh, secondly, I mean, VW Bugs look really small on the outside, but fucking pretty roomy on the inside. I mean, you could probably turn that into a police cruiser. There's plenty of space. Uh, he drove off quickly in the opposite direction of the police station, and after a short while, he suddenly stopped the car. Fear had set into Carol. The police officer, quote-unquote, suddenly grabbed her and tried to put handcuffs on her. Now, Carol screamed for her life. When she screamed, the man pulled out a handgun and threatened to kill her if she didn't stop. Carol found herself falling out of the car and then suddenly pushed up against the side of it by the madman. He had a crowbar in his hand and was ready to hit her head. Terror struck, she kicked his genitals and managed to break free. She kicked Ted Bundy in the dick. Good for fucking Carol. Broke free, ran towards the road, caught the attention of a couple driving by, stopped, got in, frantically jumped into the car. She was crying hysterically and told them a man had just tried to kill her. They immediately took her to the police, as you should always fucking do. Sobbing, with the handcuffs still dangling from her wrist, she told the police what one of their men had done. But there was no man with the name of Rosalind that worked there. Immediately, police were dispatched to the place where Carol had struggled for her life just an hour earlier. But of course, he was long gone. However, police were able to get a description of the man and his car. And a few days later, from off the girl's coat, a blood type. Now they have a blood type, which they could have got from the semen, but I guess, I, I guess not. The blood was type O, the same as Ted Bundy's, as police were later to learn, which helped him fucking not right then. <laughs> so, that same evening, the director of a play at Viewmont High School, so this is the same evening that Carol was, was picked up by Bundy, okay? Uh, Viewmont High School, director of a play at Viewmont High School, was approached by a handsome man who asked for her assistance in identifying a car. Yet, she was far too busy and refused him. Again, he later approached her and asked for the, her assistance. And again, she refused him. So this is him being really, really persistent. Um, as opposed to, you know, that's that's multiple views of his face being left out in the open. Secondly, he this is just after getting kicked in the nuts by Carol. He went, not only did he just go back to a public place, but he went to a fucking high school. High school to try and nab somebody. During a play where there's parents, there's, I mean, how many, it's, I mean, unless it was a shitty play and there wasn't that many people there. Um... So something seemed odd, almost scary about the man, but she ignored it and kept on with the work at hand. It disturbed her to see the man again in the back of the auditorium, and she wondered what the hell he really wanted. So Debbie Kent, who was watching this evening performance along with her parents, left early to pick up her brother at the bowling alley. She told her parents that she'd be back to pick them up shortly, but she never did. In fact, she never made it to the car which stood empty in the school parking lot. Debbie Kent was nowhere to be found. What police did find in the parking lot was a small handcuff key. Later, when police tried to fit the key that they found into the handcuffs worn by Carol earlier that night, it was a perfect match. Go figure. Almost a month later, a man would call police to tell them that he had seen a tan VW bug speed away from the high school parking lot the night of Kent's disappearance. Now, why it was almost a month later, I don't know. We covered this in our... Uh, alphabet killer where we talked about bystander syndrome where uh, you know you see something happen and you assume somebody else is going to do the right thing and then it just turns out to be a whole bunch of douchebags not doing the right thing i mean it, it, it happens it's it's almost like being a deer caught in the headlights um on january 12th of 1975 karen campbell 
her fiance, Dr. Raymond Godowski, and his two children took a trip to Colorado. So now we're moving into Colorado. Karen hoped that she could enjoy a breakaway from the work and spend more time with the children, while her fiance attended a seminar. Now, she was relaxing in the lounge of the hotel with Godowski and his son and daughter one night. She realized that she had actually forgotten a magazine and returned to her room to retrieve it. Her fiance and the children waited for her return in vain. He knew she was a bit ill that night and went back to the room to see if she needed any help. Well, Karen was nowhere in sight. As a matter of fact, she had never even made it to the room. By mid-morning, confused and worried, Godowski informed the police of her disappearance. They searched every room in the hotel, but they found no trace of Karen. About a month later, a few miles from where she had disappeared, a recreational worker found Karen's nude body lying a short distance from the road. Animals had ravaged her body, uh, which made it difficult to determine the precise cause of death. However, it was evident that she had received crushing fractures that could have been fatal. Once again, it's matching what it is that Ted Bunny does. Crack him over the head with a crowbar. Uh, like many of the victims found in Utah and Washington, she had suffered from repeated blows to the head, possibly made by a sharp instrument. According to Richard Larson's book, Bundy, The Deliberate Stranger, um, that's the name of the book, by the way, The Deliberate Stranger, the blows were so violent that one of her teeth was actually separated from the gum line in her mouth. Fuck. There was also evidence that she had been raped. Of course, that's kind of his thing. Uh, it was believed that she was murdered just hours after she disappeared. Now, apart from Karen's brutalized remains, there was little evidence to be found at the scene. If you, I mean, we know that that's also his M.O. It kills him, moves him. A few months after Corinne Campbell's body was discovered, the remains of another person were found 10 miles from where the bodies of Naslin and Ott were located in Washington. It was Brenda Ball, one of the seven women who had disappeared earlier that summer. The cause of her death was blows to the head with a blunt object. Now, here's the thing I read about Bundy, um, and this just reminded me of it. He had, uh, I guess you'd call them burial grounds, where, especially in Washington, where he would take the bodies. And a lot of guys, a lot of serial killers I've found, actually go back and revisit the bodies. And, I mean, he said that he went back and, and practiced necrophilia with the bodies. If you don't know what necrophilia is, that's, that's fucking a dead body. Um, I don't know if he ever actually tried any cannibalism, but that seems to be a reoccurring thing with a lot of these psychopaths, too. Uh, so, police searched Taylor Mountain, where the bodies were found. It would only be a couple days later when another body would be discovered. I mean, we're stacking them, guys. Uh, the body was that of Susan Rancourt, who had also disappeared earlier that summer. The Taylor Mountains had become the burial site for the madman known as Ted. Two more bodies were found that month. One of them was Linda Ann Healy. All the victims suffered from severe head contusions from a blunt instrument, possibly a crowbar. Sorry, I had to swallow there for a second. Police continued unsuccessfully to look for the killer. Five more women were found dead in Colorado under similar circumstances. They were not the last to fall victim to Ted's killing spree, however. A suspect. Ooh. On August 16, 1975, Sergeant Bob Hayward was patrolling an area just outside of Salt Lake County when he spotted a suspicious tan VW bug driving past. He knew the neighborhood well and almost all the residents that lived there and he couldn't remember seeing the tan VW there before. So when he put on his lights to get a better view of the VW's license plate, the driver of the bug turned off his lights and began speeding away. Now you're gonna notice with Bundy that it's his fucking driving habits that get him caught 
every time this motherfucker gets caught, it's not due to great detective work. It's not any of that shit. It's that he made a traffic violation, and then boom, they're like, oh, fuck, you match everything perfectly, and look what you have in your car. So immediately, Sergeant Hayward began to chase the vehicle. The car sped through the stop signs before it eventually pulled over into a nearby gas station. Hayward pulled up behind the reckless driver and watched as the occupant got out of his car and approached the police car. Hayward asked the young man for his registration and license, which was issued to Theodore Robert Bundy. Just then, the other troopers pulled up behind the tan VW. Hayward noticed that the passenger seat in Bundy's car was missing. With mounting suspicions and Bunny's permission, the three officers inspected the VW. The officers found a crowbar, a ski mask, rope, handcuffs, wire, and ice pick. Uh, like he's a fucking boondock saint. Uh, Bunny was immediately placed under arrest for suspicion of burglary. Hmm. Right? Burglary. Okay, I can see that going in. Uh, soon after Bunny's arrest, police began to find connections between him and the man who attacked Carol de Ronf. The handcuffs that were found in Bunny's car were the same make and brand that her attacker had used, and the car he drove was similar to the one she had described. Furthermore, the crowbar found in Bunny's car was similar to the weapon that had been used to threaten Carol earlier that November. They also suspected that Bundy was the man responsible for the kidnapping of Melissa Smith, Laura Aim, and Debbie Kent. There were just too many damn similarities among the cases for police to ignore. However, they knew they needed much more evidence to support the case against Bundy. I don't know how much more fucking evidence you need. It was the same thing with fucking, uh, what's his name? God damn it. Not Richard Ramirez. The other one that we called Richard Chase, when they just didn't get a fucking warrant. It's, uh, anyway, on October 2nd, 1975, Carol Durant, along with the director of the Viewmont High School play and a friend of Debbie Kent, were asked to attend a lineup of seven men, one of whom was Ted Bundy at a Utah police station. Investigators were not surprised when Carol picked Ted from the lineup as the man who had attacked her. The play director and friend of Debbie Kent also picked Ted from the lineup as the man they had seen wandering around the auditorium the night Debbie Kent had disappeared. Like I said, he showed his face too many times at this point. Now, although Ted repeatedly, repeatedly professed his innocence, I'm innocent, I didn't do any of this shit, look at me, look how nice my hair is, police were almost positive that they had their guy. Now, soon after he was picked out of the lineup, investigators launched a full-blown investigation into the man they knew as Theodore Robert Bundy, or as we would later know him as Ted Bundy. So the investigation. Now, during the fall of 1975, police investigators approached Elizabeth Kendall for whatever information that she was able to give about Ted. Right? Now, this is the same Elizabeth that had called and said, I think it might be my boyfriend, who at the time was fucking Ted Bundy. So... At, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, I guess. Now, they believe that Elizabeth would most likely hold the key to Bundy's whereabouts, habits, and personality. What investigators learned would later help link Ted Bundy to the murder victims. Now, on September 16th of 1975, Elizabeth was called into the King County Police Major Crime Unit building in Washington State and interviewed by detectives Jerry Thompson, Dennis Couch, and Ira Beale. Now, she was visibly stressed and nervous, but willing to offer the police any information necessary to help the case. Now, keep in mind, this is in Washington as they're looking for Bundy while he's going through all his tomfuckery in, U in Utah and Colorado. Okay, so it's, it's you know, we're, we're bouncing back and forth between timelines. Anyway, 
When asked about Ted, she stated that on the nights of the murders, she could not account for him. Elizabeth also told police that he would often sleep during the day and go out at night, exactly where she didn't know. She said that his interest in sex had waned during the last year. Uh, when he did show interest, he pressured her into bondage. When she told Bunny that she no longer wanted to participate in his bondage fantasies, he was very upset with her. Um, which, that, I don't think necessarily makes you a serial killer. Everybody has their, has their thing. Let your freak flag fly. You know what I mean? You, you, everybody has their thing. As long as it's two consenting adults, nobody really gets hurt, you guys have a safety word in place, do it. Go for it. It's great. Get a swing. Find your, find your rafters. Find where the trusses are in your house and just put that to the fucking test. In a later interview with Elizabeth, investigators learned that Ted had a plaster of Paris to make casts in his room. Now, I don't know what exactly a plaster of Paris is. I'm assuming it's the material that, I mean, to make casts, um, which I think that that's too much work. I would have just been paper mache in that shit because I'm not going to spend money, um, which she had noticed when they first began dating. So that, that didn't seem odd to her. I guess maybe she thought that... Because, you know, he was in college when they started dating. So she probably thought that maybe, okay, he's going to be a lawyer slash doctor. Um, she also noticed on a later occasion that in his car he had a hatchet. Which, I mean, he always said he liked the woods and the mountains. I, that, that's not uncommon. But there was something else important to the case that Elizabeth would remember. She recalled that Ted had visited Lake Sammamish Park in July where he had supposedly gone water skiing. So she just put him at the location where the girls went missing, okay, where they said that a Ted was walking around. A week after Ted had gone to Lake Sammamish Park, Janice Ott and Denise Naslin were reported missing. So that, that implicates it. After long hours of interviews with Elizabeth, investigators decided to shift their focus to Ted's former girlfriend in California. Now, when police contacted her, she told them of how... He had abruptly changed his manner towards her from loving and affectionate to cruel and insensitive. Upon further questioning, uh, police learned that Bunny's relationship with his California girlfriend had overlapped with his relationship with Elizabeth and neither of them knew of the other woman. <clears throat> so if nothing else, if nothing else, they could throw this shit up on Jerry Springer. Now Ted seemed to be living a double life, filled with lies and betrayal, which I mean, a yeah, dudes, you shouldn't cheat. It's fucking stupid. You're going to get caught. You're going to get caught up, and you do nothing but hurt people in the end, and you usually end up screwing yourself over. Um, but that still does not make you a serial killer. I'm not seeing, you know, cheating, bondage, and cast making immediately making you a serial killer. This is all... Mm, it's all just random shit that's compiling up against the guy, I guess. But when you put it into the light of how it was utilized, then, yeah. I mean, if you're trying to build a character you know, a character report, a character profile on this guy, cheating, lying, seems to be his forte, so. Uh, there was more to Ted than what investigators had initially expected. Further investigation yielded more evidence that would later link him to other victims. Linda Ann Healy was linked to Bundy through a cousin of his. More eyewitnesses would recognize him from Lake Sammamish Park. During the time Ott and Aslan would, had disappeared, an old friend of Bunny's came forward saying he had been uh, he had seen pantyhose in the glove compartment of his car, which some dudes collect trophies, which is weird, but maybe that's what that was. Plus, Ted had spent a lot of time in the Taylor Mountains where the bodies of victims had been found. I mean, maybe he liked hiking. So it's, it's, all, it's all things that they're, they're using, and it's all um, coincidental at best, although we know it's true. I'm just saying, you know, if, if you're looking at it from an actual investigator's eyes, it's all coincidence. 
Uh, Bunny's credibility was further dented when police discovered that he purchased gas on credit cards in the towns where some of the victims had disappeared. Furthermore, a friend had been had seen him with his arm around, or in a cast, rather, sorry, and there was no record of him ever having a broken arm. The evidence against Ted Bunny was building up, yet he still continued to profess his innocence. Tribulations. On February 23rd of 1976, Ted was put on trial for the kidnapping of Carol Durant. Bundy sat in a relaxed manner in the courtroom, confident that he would be found innocent of the charges against him. He believed that there was no hard evidence to convict him, but he couldn't have been more wrong. When Carol Durant took the stand, she told of her ordeal that she suffered 16 months earlier. When asked if she were able to recognize the person who attacked her, she began to cry as she lifted her hand and pointed a finger to the man who had called himself Officer Rosalind. The people in the courtroom turned their attention to Ted Bunny, who stared at Durant coldly as she pointed at him. Later in the trial, Ted had said that he had never seen the defendant, but he had no alibi to confirm his whereabouts the day of the attack. That shitty. If you're going to do some dirt, make sure to have a fucking alibi. You know, just, hey, hey, that's why you always pop in at an old friend's house. Like, we haven't seen each other in years, man. It's fucking, hey, how's it going? It's 8.15. All right, I'll see you in a little bit. Uh, the judge spent the weekend reviewing the case before he handed down a verdict. Two days later, he would find Bundy guilty beyond reasonable doubt of aggravated kidnapping. Ted Bundy was later sentenced on June 30th to 1 to 15 years in prison with the, possi with, uh, the possibility of parole. Now, while in prison, Bundy was subjected to a psychological evaluation that the court had previously requested. Now, Anne Rule, uh, we referred to Anne Rule a lot on the last couple episodes. Uh, her book, The Stranger Beside Me, when she worked at the, uh, the um, suicide hotline with, with Ted Bundy. Um, she stated that psychologists found Bundy to neither be psychotic, neurotic, the victim of organic brain disease, alcohol, an alcoholic, addicted to drugs, suffering from a character disorder or amnesia, and was not a sexual deviant. Now, the psychologist, however, did conclude that he had a strong dependency on women and deduced that the dependency was suspect at best. Upon further evaluation, though, they concluded that Ted had a fear of being humiliated in his relationships with women. That sounds like, you know, Ted Bunny's just a man's man, um, which I don't understand that fucking term. Anyway, now while Bunny remained incarcerated in Utah State Prison, investigators began a search for evidence connecting him to the murders of Karen Campbell and Melissa Smith. Uh, what Bunny did not realize, however, was that his legal problems would soon escalate. Detectives discovered in Bundy's VW hairs that were examined by the FBI and found to be characteristically alike, characteristically alike it fucking matched Campbell's hair, all right, and Smith's hair. Uh, further <laughs> examination of Karen Campbell's remains showed that her skull her skull break impressions or her skull bore impressions made by a blunt instrument and those impressions matched the crowbar that had been discovered in Bundy's car a year earlier when they thought that it was fucking for robbing places. Um, Colorado police filed charges against Bundy on October 22nd, 1976 for the murder of Karen Campbell. Now in April of 1977, Ted was transferred to Garfield County Jail in Colorado to await uh, the trial for the murder of Karen Campbell. Now, that's only because of the fact that they found the hairs, which put him in Colorado during the murders. They found those hairs, um, so they didn't have any proof as of yet that Ted was the killer in Utah. They had eyewitnesses, they had all that going on, but they didn't have actual hard evidence. 
Now, Colorado just came across some, and that's why Ted got transferred to Colorado. Just in case you're like, how the fuck did he end up in a Colorado jail? Well, I just explained it. There you go. Now, during preparation of his case, Bundy became increasingly unhappy with his representation. He believed his lawyer to be inept and incapable, and eventually he fired him, which is also the signs of a sociopath. Just because we're there. Now, Bundy experienced in-law, I mean, kind of. He went to fucking college for it, but did he pass any bar at Yeah, whatever. Anyway, believed he could do the job better, and he began to take up his own defense in the case. He felt confident that he would succeed at the trial scheduled for November 14, 1977. Bundy had a lot of work ahead of him. He was granted permission to leave the confines of the jail on occasion and utilize the courthouse library in Aspen now to conduct his research. Now, what police didn't know was that he was planning an escape. Here's the thing. This son of a bitch in his cell, okay, would hop off of his top bunk and he would fucking take hard hits to the ground. He would try to land hard on purpose to train his legs to a stand what would be like jump out of a second story window. And then he would actually pace back and forth kind of jog back and forth in his cell which he didn't have much room by the way because he also had a shit ton of, of law books in there but he would actually go back and forth back and forth back and forth in his cell to, to build up the stamina to be able to run to the woods this motherfucker was in his cell planning plotting this shit I mean you want to talk I mean just conniving conniving and almost to the point where it's impressive I mean he's fucking it's the, he, he is, without a doubt, I mean, I think one of the more, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Mm, ambitious of, of all the people we've covered so far. Everybody else just seemed like assholes and crazy. He actually has a little bit of foresight. Not when it came to getting caught, obviously, but I mean, the escape. We're going to cover his escape. So on June 7th, during one of his trips to the library at the courthouse, Bundy managed to jump from an open window injuring his ankle in the process and escaped to freedom like Shawshank Redemption he was not wearing any leg irons or handcuffs so he did not stand out among the ordinary citizens in the town of Aspen it was an escape and yeah remember he's also dressed for court so he's not even wearing he's not even wearing his 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 normal uh, prison clothes so he's in plain clothes probably nice clothes and fucking as long as he can fake not having a limp he can walk amongst everybody else how crazy is that it was an escape that had been planned by Ted for a while. Aspen police were quick to set up roadblocks surrounding the town, yet Ted knew to stay within the city limits for the time being and lay low. Police launched a massive land search using uh, scent tracking dogs, bloodhounds, 150 fucking searchers in the hopes of catching Ted. However, I mean, they probably had the public out looking for him, just cascading through the woods. Let's go find this motherfucker. Uh, Ted was able to elude them for days. Now, while on the run, Bunny managed to live off the food he stole from local cabins and nearby campers, occasionally sleeping in some that were abandoned. Now, Bunny knew that what he really needed was a car. He needs some wheels. He needs a mode of transportation guy to get as far as fast from this fucking place as possible. Uh, he'd be better able to pass through police barriers if he had a car. Now, he couldn't hide in Aspen forever. Ted believed that he was destined to be free now according to an interview with Mashad and Ainsworth 
He felt as if he were invincible and claimed that nothing went wrong. If something did go wrong, it just was compensated somehow. It was even better. Like, he just, boom. I mean, he ever the optimist. Now, sure enough, he found his ticket out of town when he discovered a car with the keys left in it. But, once again, his luck would not last long. Now, while trying to flee Aspen in a stolen vehicle, he was spotted. And from then on, he was ordered to wear handcuffs and leg irons while conducting his research at the library in Aspen. Once again, this time, it wasn't even at a blockade. It was a routine traffic stop. From what I saw on uh, the Ted Bundy tapes, I believe, I probably should have watched that episode before this because I might just be spouting out my ass, but I believe he just made a fucking suspicious U-turn and the guy stopped him, which I've even gotten tickets that way. Like, oh, uh, I'm not supposed to go this way, and the next thing you know, my car gets towed because I... For a while, I didn't believe in paying for insurance. Uh, anyway, moving on. So now he had to wear shackles, and he had to be tied down. Uh, but he was not the type of man who liked to be tied down. So almost seven months later, Bundy again attempted an escape. But this time, he was more successful. On December 30th, he crawled up into the ceiling of the Garfield County Jail and made his way to another part of the building. He managed to find another opening in the ceiling that led down into the closet of the jailer's apartment. He sat and waited until he knew that the apartment was empty, then casually walked out of the front door to his freedom. He walked out the front fucking door of his jail. Son of a bitch. His escape would go undiscovered until the following afternoon, more than 15 hours later. Plenty of time for his ass to actually get out of town. By the time police learned of his escape, Bunny was well on his way to Chicago. Chicago was one of the few stops that Bunny would make along the route to his final destination, fucking Florida. That's where everybody retires, is Florida. And Bunny was probably the ultimate Florida man. Uh, so by mid-January of 1978, Ted Bunny, using his newly acquired name, Chris Hagen, had settled comfortably into a one-room apartment in Tallahassee, fucking Florida. Now, Ted Bundy enjoyed his newfound freedom and replaced that new little, if anything at all, about him. You know, at this point, we're still, you know, essentially west coast of America. You know, I mean, Chicago is about as much Midwest as we've covered so far. Colorado, you know, southwest. You got Colorado, Utah, and, and then Washington, the northwest. So kind of more towards the west coast. So it might not even be making huge news on the East Coast. And at the time, during this time, the East Coast was ha had the alphabet killer, had, I mean, you fucking name it, not to mention everything that was going down in New York City. There was still a lot of uh, uh, turmoil and crime. And this is actually the, some of the, the highest crime in New York City at the time. So there was a lot going on in that East Coast. Now, uh, he felt comfortable in his new environment, nearby Florida State University. Hmm, wonder why he was fucking comfortable. Now, he spent much of his free time walking around FSU. <laughs> now, uh, me and my buddies actually, FSU stands for fuck shit up, which is what Ted Bunny's known for, so I just found it kind of humorous that he, FSU. Any, anyway, near FSU's campus, occasionally ducking into classes unnoticed and listening in on lectures. Uh, when he was not wandering around campus, he would spend his time in his apartment watching his television he had stolen. Uh, theft became second nature to Bundy. Almost everything in his apartment was stolen merchandise, which kind of funny that he got picked up originally for burglary and now he's actually stealing shit uh even the food he ate was purchased from stolen credit cards um now given the circumstances circumstances however bunny seemed to have enough material things to make him content now what he didn't have and what he was missing most was companionship he was a lonely lonely man 
Now, murder on the run. So on Saturday night, January 14th, a few of the sorority sisters could be found at the Chai Omega house. Now, most were out dancing or at keg parties on campus. It wasn't unusual for the sisters to stay out late since they, you know, had no curfew. Uh, in fact, it was pretty normal for the girls to return in the early morning hours. Now, however, none of the sisters were prepared to confront the horror that awaited them back at their sorority house later that night. At 3 a.m., Nita Neary was dropped off at the sorority house by her boyfriend after attending a keg party on campus. Upon reaching the door to the house, she noticed it standing wide open. Soon after she had entered the building, she heard some movement, as if someone was running in the rooms above her. Suddenly, she heard the footsteps approaching the staircase near her, and she hid in a doorway. Out of view, she watched as a man with a knit blue cap pulled over his eyes, holding a log with cloth around it, ran down the stairs and out the door. Nita's first thought was that the sorority house had just been burglarized. Then she immediately ran up the stairs to wake her roommates, Nancy, <clears throat> her roommate Nancy, sorry. Nita told her of the strange man she saw leaving the building. Unsure of what to do, the girls made their way to the house mother's room. Yet, before they were able to make it to her room, they saw another roommate, Karen, staggering down the hall. Her entire head was soaked with blood. Now, while Nancy tried to help Karen, Nita woke up the house mother, and the two of them went to check on another roommate nearby. They found Kathy in her room alive, but in a horrible state. She was also covered in blood that was seeping from open wounds on her head. Hysterical. Nancy ran to the phone and dialed the police. Police later found two more girls dead in their rooms, lying in their beds. Someone had attacked them while they slept. Lisa Levy was the first girl that officers found dead. Pathologists, who later performed the autopsy on her, found that she had been beaten on the head with a log, raped, and strangled. Upon further examination, they discovered bite marks on her buttocks, so he bit her ass, and on one of her nipples. In fact, Lisa's nipple had been so severely bitten that it was almost severed from the rest of her breast. That's one thing I don't understand about some of these guys. I don't understand the kill. I don't understand any of it, honestly, but I mean, the the brutality that they do to breasts like that seems to be a reoccurring thing with them and i don't know if that's like some underlining fucking maternal issues that they have or i mean or some sort of strange i mean this to me honestly this all seems like some i don't psychopath slash oedipus complex that they have like they're 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 already um sociopaths and then you mix that with some sort of strange 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 form of affection that they have for their moms it just gets fucking weird. Um, sorry. Anyway, she had also been sexually assaulted with a hairspray bottle. Ugh, God. Postmortem reports on Margaret Bowman showed that she suffered similar fatal injuries, although she had not been sexually assaulted, and she showed no signs of bite marks. She had been strangled by a pair of pantyhose that were later found at the scene of the crime. She had also been beaten on the head, yet so severely that her skull was splintered and a portion of her brain was exposed. Neither she nor Lisa Levy showed signs of a struggle. Investigators who interviewed the survivors learned nothing. None of the girls had any memory of the events. Um, like Levy and Bowman, they too had been asleep when they were attacked. The only witness was Nita Neary who was able to catch a profile of the killer as he fled. However, the assailant would not travel far before claiming another victim that night. Um, so, 
every killer gets into what they call a berserker phase. Um, and I got to do more research on that. But a berserker phase is like it's all coming to a head. Like they kill one person this month and then they go they go months without doing it. And then they do it. And then all of a sudden there's two bodies that pop up in a certain time frame. And then three bodies start to stack up in a shorter time frame. And then before you know it, most of the time, just before they're caught, they go on a fucking rampage which it seems like he's building up to his berserker phase so caught again now less than a mile from the chai omega house a young woman was awakened by loud banging noises coming from the apartment next to her she wondered what her friend in the adjoined apartment was doing to make so much noise at four in the fucking morning so as the banging noises persisted she became suspicious and woke her roommate as they listened they heard cheryl next door moaning frightened they called over to her house to see if she was all right. When no one picked up the phone, they immediately called the police. The police came quickly, and after all, they were just blocks away from the Chai Omega house, tending to the crime scene there. So they entered Cheryl's apartment and walked to her bedroom, where they found her sitting on the bed. Her face was just beginning to swell from the bludgeoning to her head. She was still somewhat conscious and half-nude, but lucky to be alive. Police discovered a mask at the foot of her bed. According to Anne Rule and the stranger beside me, the mask that was found resembled almost exactly the mask taken from Ted Bunny's car when he'd been arrested in Utah in August of 1975. I guess he has a specific brand. It's Under Armour. He likes to cut wide holes in it. And he likes the actual, like, forest green color. I don't know if any of that's true. Fuck him. Police investigators worked diligently on the evidence that was left behind. They were able to get a blood type from the assailant, sperm samples, and fingerprint smudges. Unfortunately, most of the evidence that was tested proved to be inconclusive. The only firm evidence investigators were able to obtain were the hairs found in the mask, teeth impressions from the bite marks on the victims, and an eyewitness account from Nita Neary. Now, investigators did not have a suspect, and Ted Bundy was unknown to them. On February 9, 1978, Lake City Police received a phone call from the distressed parents of 12-year-old Kimberly Leach. They were hysterical and said that their daughter had disappeared that day. Police launched a massive search to find the missing girl who disappeared from her school grounds. The person who last saw her was her friend Priscilla who saw Kimberly get into the car of a stranger that day that she disappeared. Unfortunately, she was unable to accurately remember the car or the driver. They found Kimberly's body eight weeks later in a state park in Sweeney County, Florida. The young girl's body yielded little information due to advanced decomp decomposition. However, police were to later find the evidence they needed in a van driven by Ted Bundy. A few days before Kimberly Leach had disappeared, a strange man in a white van approached a 14-year-old girl as she waited for her brother to pick her up. The man had claimed he was from the fire department and asked her if she attended the school nearby. She found it strange that an on-duty fireman was wearing plaid pants and a navy jacket. She began to feel uncomfortable. She had been warned on many occasions by her father, who was also the chief of detectives for the Jacksonville Police Department, so kind of like the Utah chief, not to talk with strangers. She was relieved when her brother drove up. Suspicious of the man, her brother ordered her into the car, followed the man, and wrote down his license plate to give to his father. Fucking a smart kid. Now, upon hearing of the stranger in the white van, Detective James Parmenter had the license plate checked out. He's doing his due diligence. Go, Dad. Go, Police Chief Dad. Uh, he learned it belonged to a man named Randall Reagan, and he decided to pay him a visit. Now, Reagan informed the detective that his plates had been stolen and he had already been issued new ones. 
The detective later found out that the van his children had seen was also stolen, and he had an idea who it might have been. Oh, sorry. Yeah. He decided to take his children to the police station to show them to show them a stack of mugshots, Bundy's picture being among them. He hadn't realized how close he had been to losing his own daughter. Both of his children recognized the man in the van as Ted Bundy. The van long since discarded, Bundy set out towards Pensacola, Florida in a new stolen car. This time he managed to find a vehicle he was more comfortable driving. A VW Bug. I mean, if he is not a creature, fucking habit. Like, anywho. I mean, I guess maybe it was also for the times, but I mean, it's 70, what is it? It's 1976 at the time? I mean, have you seen the 72 Chevelles or the 74 Novas? Like, that's what I would have been cruising in. Anywho, Officer David Lee was patrolling an area in West Pensacola when he saw an orange VW at 10 p.m. on February 15th. He knew the area well and most of the residents, yet he had never before seen the car. Which shit like this, side side note, I'm sorry, but shit like this, like he knew the area well and most of their residents, how many of you fucking know the name of your local cops? Like, I mean, genuinely, I'm just asking. I mean, how many of you know your fucking neighbors? Like, I, I recently moved, not recently moved, well, yeah, I guess recently. I, I moved to a new house in April to a new town. I know two of my neighbors, two. Now, granted, you know, COVID-19, all the other shit's gone, but they introduced themselves to me. Where I'm from, when I was growing up in Phoenix, you didn't fucking talk to your neighbors. You didn't, I mean, you just, you didn't. Everybody was a fucking freak. We lived in downtown Phoenix. You know, it's it's just, it's it's strange to me that there was a time when everybody knew everybody. And it seemed like this is the second time he's being profiled get it and you gotta slip it in there this is the second time he's being profiled is like hey motherfucker you don't belong here we need to go back to that guys we need to go back to that type of society we need to know our neighbors again you know we do we need to know our neighbors we need to know our neighbors fucking kids like we need to know we need to know what kids our kids know we need to know our fucking you need to know when you run into your kids teacher at the store you just ran into your kids fucking teacher like you, you gotta know these things and maybe it's harder if you live in a more urban area or if you live in in a larger city or even some of the suburbs out there that are just scattered you know but i i just feel like it would be such a better better life if we went back to that side note done fucking sorry so anyway officer lee decided to run a check on the license plates and soon found out that they were also stolen immediately he turned on his lights and began to follow the vw fucking picked up by traffic cops once again, as it happened in Utah several years earlier, Bundy started to flee. Suddenly, Bundy pulled over and stopped. Officer Lee ordered him out of his car and told Bundy to lay down with his hands in front. To Lee's surprise, as he had begun to handcuff Bundy, he rolled over and began to fight the officer. Bundy managed to fight his way free and run. Just as soon as he did, Lee fired his weapon at him. Bundy dropped to the ground, pretending to have been shot. As the officer approached him, lying on the ground, he was again attacked by Bundy. I just figure that's gotta. I, I kind of feel like that'd be a funny fucking scene, like play dead. I get him again, you know. And then run, 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 run. However, <coughs> excuse me. However, the officer was able to overpower him. He was handcuffed and taken to the police station. Bundy had finally been caught. Over the months following Bundy's arrest, investigators, investigators, what the fuck was that? Investigators were able to compile critical evidence to be used against Bundy in the Leach case. <sighs> Poor little girl. The white van that had been stolen by Bundy was found, and they had three eyewitnesses that had seen him driving it that afternoon. Kimberly had disappeared. Forensic tests conducted on the van yielded fibers of material that had come from Bundy's clothes. 
Tests also revealed Kimberly Leach's blood type on the van's carpet and semen and Ted's blood type on her underwear. Further evidence was Ted's shoe impressions in the soil located next to the place Kimberly was found. Police felt confident with the information they had, tying Bundy to the Leach case, and on July 31st, 1978, Ted Bundy was charged with the girl's murder. Soon after, he would also be charged with the Chai Omega murders, facing the death penalty. Ted would later plead in his own defense that he was not guilty of these murders. Theodore Robert Bundy faced two murder trials, both spaced within three years. His first trial date was set for June 25th of 1979 in Miami, Florida. The court case centered on the brutal attacks on the Chai Omega sorority sisters. The second trial was to take place in January of 1980 in Orlando, Florida, where Ted was to be tried for the murder of Kimberly Leach. Both trials would result in less than favorable outcomes for Ted. However, it would be the Chai Omega murder case that would seal his fate forever. Florida versus Theodore Robert Bundy. The opening of the Chai Omega murder trial sparked immense public interest and a media frenzy. After all, Ted had been suspected of at least 36 murders in four states and his name elicited nightmarish images to thousands, perhaps even millions around the world until later in the mid to late 2000s, he would actually be portrayed by the none other than the super sexy Zac Efron. He was considered by many to be evil, reincarnate, a monster, the devil, and his murders initiated the biggest and most publicized trials of the decade. During the Chai Omega murder trial, Ted acted as his own defense attorney. He was confident in his abilities and believed that he would be given a fair trial. The jury, made up of mostly of African Americans, looked on as he defended himself against the murder charges. Now why that had to be pointed out, I have absolutely no idea. but. That was the thing, I guess. Anyway, it became clear early in the trial that Ted was fighting a losing battle. Now, there were two events in the trial that would sway the jury against Ted. The first was Nita Neary's testimony of what she had seen the night of the murders. Now, while on the stand, she pointed to Ted as a man who had seen that she had seen fleeing down the stairs and out the door of the Chai Omega house. The second event that swayed the jury during the trial was the testimony of odontologist Dr. Richard Sovereign. Now, while on the stand, Dr. Sovereign described the bite mark injuries found on Lisa Levy's body. Now, here's the thing. This is when they decided to do uh, almost like the same casting they do for your... Uh, for dentures to get the same mold as your mouth they did that with the bite marks left on the bodies and then they they snuck Bundy out in the middle of the fucking night if I remember correctly to go get his teeth taken pictures of full-scale pictures of his teeth and then and then go ahead and make the uh, the clay adaptations or the uh, whatever the fuck it is I'm gonna say clay hard clay baked clay fucking molds right uh, the photos would be the biggest piece of evidence that the prosecution had linking Ted to the crime. Now, some people say that that's not a fair way to do it, but at the same time, though, they can identify your body with only your dental records. So why wouldn't they, I mean, I can kind of see using this. Now, on July 23rd, Ted waited in his cell as the jurors deliberated over his guilt or innocence. After almost seven hours, they returned to the courtroom with a verdict showing no emotion Ted listened as one of the jurors read out, guilty on all counts of murder. 
Now, I'm going to find a nice article on Ted defending himself and kind of go through that, I think, with you guys. Um, because that just shows what a fucking control freak sociopath that he was. He, he had to have full control of his own innocence trial. Like, not innocence trial, but his own murder trial. He had to sit there and fucking... He, he ran the whole thing. He tried to fire his help. Like, it, it was insane. And then at the end, you know, at the end of his trial, the judge even complimented him for being such a bright young man and was, was, was horrified at the fact that Ted had taken such a strange, strange turn with his life. Um, anyway, Ted was found guilty beyond reasonable doubt in the state of Florida. It is customary to have a separate sentencing trial. So Ted's sentencing took place one week later on July 30th um, before the same jury that had found him guilty. Now, during the brief hearing, Ted's mother testified and tearfully pleaded for her son's life. Of course she would. Ted was also given a chance to address the court and refute the recommendation for the uh, prosecution for the death penalty. Ted professed his innocence, claiming that the prejudice of the media was responsible for his alleged misrepresentation. He also su suggested that the entire proceedings and verdict was nothing short of a farce, which he was unable to accept. Uh, so according to Larson, Ted told the Hush courtroom that it was absurd to ask for mercy for something he did not do. So professing his innocence to the end. Uh, he also told the Hush courtroom um, not share the burden of the guilt. So he decided he would not share the burden of the guilt. Judge Coart, who presided over both trials, handed down his final judgment following Ted's statement. He affirmed the recommendation and imposed the death penalty twice for the murders of Margaret Bowman and Lisa Levy. The method of execution Ted faced was the electric chair. Now the Kimberly Leach trial. Now after many delays, the Leach trial began in Orlando um, at the Orange County Courthouse on January 7, 1980 in Florida. This time, Ted decided not to represent himself. Instead, handing over the responsibility to defense attorneys Julius Africano and Lynn Thompson. Their strategy was to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, a plea that was risky, but one of the few available options open to the defense. Um, if Ted was so fucking smart, he probably would have tried that himself. The fact that he tried to represent himself is kind of fucking insane, honestly. So the plea of insanity might not have been difficult for the seven women, five-man jury to believe. Unlike the other hearings, Ted became increasingly agitated throughout the trial. At one point, he even lost control and stood up yelling at a witness with whom he disagreed. Now, probably still stuck in lawyer face. Hmm? Rashad and Ainsworth stated that Ted was just barely able to control himself, expending huge amounts of energy just to keep from blowing apart. It appeared that Ted's facade of confidence was beginning to fade, probably because he realized that he had already lost the war and this legal battle wouldn't make much difference in determining his fate. He was going to go to the electric chair no matter what. And there was no doubt that the outlook for Ted was bleak. Assistant State Attorney Bob Deckel presented 65 witnesses that had connected Ted either directly or indirectly with Kimberly Leach on the day of her disappearance. Now, one of the star witnesses had seen a man resembling Ted leading an upset little girl matching Kimberly's description into a white van in front of the girl's school. However, the defense team argued the legitimacy of the testimony because the man was unable to recall the precise day he had seen the man and the little girl. Fucking hope it didn't happen often to that fucking school. 
Nevertheless, Deck would continue to press on and present even more convincing evidence. The most damaging was the fiber evidence, which linked Ted's clothes and the van he had driven that day with the crime scene. Moreover, fibers matching those from Kimberly Leach's clothes were found in the van and on Ted's clothing that he had allegedly worn on the day of the crime. The prosecution's expert witness, who testified about the fiber analysis, stated that she believed that, a, that at some point Ted and Kimberly Leach had been in contact around the time of her death. Rashad and Ainsworth claimed that the testimony had been literally fatal to Ted's case. Exactly one month following the opening of the trial, Judge Wallace Japling asked the jury to deliberate. On February 7th, after less than seven hours of deliberation, the jury returned the verdict guilty. The verdict was immediately followed by jubilation from the prosecution team and their supporters, not just them, but nationwide. Also, fucking psychopaths out there, um, women, um, this is aimed at women. Um, there's there's whole documentaries based off of women who marry serial killers, who are attracted to serial killers. It turns out that women is actually women are actually the largest demographic for listening to true crime. So thank you, thank you for that. I'm not by by no I'm I I'm not trying to malign you whatsoever. It's when it goes from um, fascination to infatuation. That's when we have an issue. The same thing with dudes out there. Like, we have a habit of going from fascination to infatuation, and men don't handle those emotions very well. So, work on yourselves. Don't marry serial killers, don't become serial killers, and we'll all get along great. Let's see here. February 9th marked the second anniversary of Kimberly Leach's death. It also was the day that the sentencing trial commenced. During the penalty phase of the trial, Ted shocked those in the courtroom while he interviewed defense witness Carol Ann Boone. During his questioning of Carol, the two caught everyone off guard when they exchanged vows. <sighs> According to Florida law, the verbal promise made under oath was enough to seal the agreement and the two were considered officially married. Now, if you do not know who Carol Ann Boone is, Carol Ann Boone, I don't think I ever covered her, is a longtime college friend of Ted Bundy's. They, they remained friends the entire time. Ted Bundy would actually end up marrying her and having a daughter with her. And there are pictures all over the place that you can Google of Ted, his wife, and his daughter kicking it in his fucking uh, 8 by 8 fucking death row cell. He tried to raise his daughter and raise a normal family while on fucking death row. How crazy is that? Uh... Shortly thereafter, the groom was sentenced to death in the electric chair for the third time in under a fucking year. He would spend his honeymoon alone on death row in Florida State's Rayford Penitentiary. Now, appeals and confessions. Ted refused to give up and believed that he still had a fighting chance to save his own life. In 1982, he enlisted the help of a new lawyer and appealed the Chi Omega murder trial verdict uh, to the Florida Supreme Court. However, his appeal was eventually denied. Shortly following the court's denial of a new hearing, Ted decided to appeal the Kimberly Leach trial verdict in May 8, 1985. His request was again turned down. Uh, however, he continued to keep up the fight, and in 1986, he enlisted a new lawyer to assist him in escaping the death penalty. Ted's execution date was initially scheduled for March 4, 1986. However, his execution was postponed while his new defense attorney, Polly Nelson, worked on his appeals for his previous murder convictions. 
Two months later, the appeal was denied and another death warrant was issued to Ted by the state of Florida. Still, the appeal process continued. According to Pauline Nelson's book, Defending the Devil, the last appeal was made to the U.S. Supreme Court, who eventually denied Ted's last day of execution on January 17, 1989. In Ted's 11th hour, he decided to confess to more crimes to the Washington State Attorney General's chief investigator for the criminal division, Dr. Bob Keppel. Ted had temporarily assisted Dr. Keppel in his hunt for the Green River Killer. Now, this is another fascinating point. Ted was almost like um, Hannibal Lecter when, like in, uh, which one was it? I think it might have been uh, Silence of the Lambs where she would go and visit him and he would, you know, give him some rundown. You're looking for this. This is how he would act. This is this. This is that. Well, that's what Ted Bunny actually became. Ted Bunny was actually helping them profile uh, certain criminals, like the Green River Killer, who's another case that we're going to cover. We're going to talk about that one's fucking crazy. The Golden State Killer, I mean, shit. Yeah, we're going to get into some shit. Uh, and I wish that I had covered, or at least found some of this stuff earlier on Ted Bunny, because I feel like this episode's a lot better than the last few have been. A lot longer, too, so fucking thanks for hanging in there. Anyway... So, from death row in the mid-1980s is when he was helping him uh, find the Green River Killer, and he trusted him immensely. Keppel went to meet Ted in an interviewing room at the prison, armed with only a tape recorder. What Keppel learned was shocking. Dr. Keppel had learned that Ted kept some of his victims' heads at his home as trophies. However, what was even more surprising was that Ted also engaged in necrophilia, see, told you, with some of the remains of the victims. In fact, Keppel later stated in his book that the river man... Uh, in his book, The River Man, because, you know, Green River Killer, Ted Bunny and I hunt for the Green River Killer that Ted's behavior could be best described as compulsive necrophilia and extreme perversion. Now, it was compulsion that led to the death of scores of women, many who remain unknown to investigators. Roland Keppel stated in their books that Ted was likely responsible for the deaths of at least 100 women, discounting the official count of 36 victims. Now, whatever the figure... The fact is no one will ever know for certain how many victims actually fell victim to Ted. Now, on January 24th, finally, 1989, at approximately 7 a.m. in the morning, Ted's memory of his atrocities would be burned away forever by the electric chair's unforgiving currents. Outside the prison walls stood hundreds of onlookers and scores of news media, which is true. If you actually go and you watch the Ted Bunny tapes, it shows you how... I mean, it, it was almost like a fucking political party rally it was insane how many people i saw on, on on this documentary out there just screaming and yelling and hooping and hollering and uh i think ted would even say something along the lines of like see look at society and they say i'm the monster so anyway <sighs> stood hundreds of onlookers and scores of news media representatives awaiting the news of ted's death now following the prison spokesman announcement that Ted was officially dead. Sounds of cheers came from the jubilant crowd and fireworks lit the sky. Fireworks over this man's fucking death. A little bit later, a white hearse emerged from the prison gates with the remains of one of the country's most notorious serial killers. As the vehicle moved towards the crematorium, the surrounding crowd cheerfully applauded the end of a living nightmare and podcasters everywhere would try and benefit off of his tale. Uh, that is the final moments of Ted Bundy.
Um, again, thank you guys so much for hanging out. I know this was a long one. I think that the information was better. I think my delivery was better. Um, feel free to fucking email me. Uh, Facebook.com forward slash Profiling Pain Podcast. Uh, come be part of the conversation. I mean, I'm not... I'm not very active on the socials. I would really like to see you guys be a little bit more active on the socials. Like, you come hit me up, and then we can engage, and I'll talk to you guys. I am planning a Ask Me Anything on Facebook Live and on Instagram Live. If that's what it's called. I don't know what the fuck it's called. Just Instagram. Um, But, yeah. Again, thank you guys so much. Um, I really, really appreciate you guys listening, hanging out. And I'm going to be keeping up with the content a little bit better. Like I said, we got three things dropping this month. When the fuck has Profiling Pain ever dropped three episodes in a month? Never. So you're welcome. (laughs) But uh, I'm going to try to keep it like that. At least two episodes a month. I think with the uh, onset of doing an actual Profiling Pain episode and then a side profile episode, I can kind of go every two weeks, no problem. Um, Especially since I'm doing this shit alone. Uh... And yeah, that's about it. Like I said, um, next week we'll be dropping another episode, and it's going to be the crossover with Rap Sheets, where we discuss um, Jam Master J and his murder. Uh, And then, you know how I like to kind of bring up current events before every episode? Like, I mean, we just went through like an hour-long explanation of the Electoral College because, you know, an election, right? Well, uh, on the next one, we're going to discuss... uh, what the mm, power is behind the colors red and blue I guess is what I'll leave that at and it's yeah it's from playing Among Us if you haven't played Among Us I play Among Us a lot it's fucking stupid fun so try that out you guys will enjoy it that's a that's a right there catch a killer it's your own little murder mystery right there on your fucking cell phone um let's see updates 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 uh that's it uh, next episode uh, is going to be a crossover uh, for side profiles and rap sheets. Uh, like, again, go check out rap sheets. R A P P S H E E T S. Check out rap sheets at Age of Radio. You can find them on Spotify. Anywhere you, you listen to me, you will find them because Age of Radio does a great job of getting all of our podcasts out there. Thanks again to uh, Jeremy and everybody at Age of Radio. Um, check out Age of Jeremy. He's actually the. Uh, brain trust behind age of radio so check out age of jeremy that's his podcast um just go to age of radio go to the bazaar listen to uh a multitude of different varieties of podcasts i mean there's so many i can't count anymore we're getting they're 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 adding new people every day it's cool the variety we're getting and a lot more different uh true crime we have true crime trucker there's breakdown from the couch there's there's murder in the midnight sun there's there's so many awesome podcasts and true crime podcasts that everybody touches on. So if there's a case I haven't covered yet and you want to hear it, they might do it. Um, again, sentartainment at gmail.com is the email to get directly a hold of me to tell me who you'd like me to do next, which I think we might actually be doing Richard Ramirez next, the Night Stalker. Um, also, there will be a episode on Halloween release, like I said before, the story of the actual Candyman, the Candyman, and then uh, that's that's pretty much it. Moving into November, uh, probably going to do maybe one more thing on Ted Bundy um, because I do want to cover the profiling portion of it. I want to actually get more in depth of him and Keppel's back and forth and the search for the Green River Killer. 
just to kind of see how this man who's a profiler profiling Ted Bundy by having Ted Bundy's help profiling a serial killer, it's like the fucking inception of profiling, and that put me from 6 to midnight, <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, that's it, check out Age of Radio, um, if you would like to sponsor podcasts, if you are actually a somebody who's independently wealthy and have your own business, <laughs> congratulations. Um, but they also do uh, setups with, with people who like to do sponsorships and so on and so forth. Um, Rap Sheets also has a lot of cool deals. If you're looking for a lot of local stuff, if you're an Arizona um, native, they can hook you up for sure. Um, and that's about it, guys. Thank you so much. Again, thank you, Age of Radio. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, thank you to all the other podcasts on the program. Thank you in advance to Rap Sheets for doing the crossover. Uh, thank you to you guys, more importantly than anybody else, because if you weren't listening, there'd be no fucking point for me to do this. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, big shout out to you guys. I know it's been a crazy year, and the fact that you guys still find time, and hopefully it's because I'm helping you get away from it a little bit, to, uh, to listen like, subscribe, download, tell your friends because the numbers are growing every day. I thank it. I thank you guys. I thank you guys a lot. That's 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 huge. That's that's a big deal to me. Merch. Fuck. Almost forgot. Merch. Merch. Uh, by November, there will be a merch store. We will have at least a fucking t-shirt for you to purchase if you would like to do so. And it's going to be through uh, uh, Teespring or Teespring, something like that. Um, it's that way. It's It's not any direct money coming to me from you it's like an online store you purchase almost like amazon whatever um that way you know if there's any uncomfort there i kind of get it you know i i'm the same way like i all the stuff that i buy of other people i usually go through a third party as well i don't know why i feel better about that it's just weird and secondly i don't want a bunch of you guys contacting me directly and sending me money um that's fucking weird for me so just staying a little transparent with you guys but anyway that's it Thank you. Um, stay alert. Stay aware. Stay healthy. Take your vitamins. Um, and above everything else, you beautiful bastards, stay fucking metal. Have a good one, guys.